I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Get your own rear! What? Who said that? Lend you our rears? What's wrong with yours? Rears? I don't want your rears. I said ears. Lend me your ears. I shall start again. Friends, Romans, countrymen. You suck! Who are you? And stop interrupting me. Hey! Did you come to bury Caesar or to suck? (laughs) Centurion, that heckler there. Caesar. Caesar? I thought he was dead. No. No, Caesar. Never mind. Where was I? You were asking us to lend you our rears. Ears. Hey, veni, vini, vici. What is that you say? I came, I saw you suck. All right, that is enough. Gods, gods. Hey, what was Hannibal Lecter's favorite movie? Hannibal who? Gladiator. (laughs) Gladiator? Centurion, what what is funny about that? Oh, he's a cannibal. Get it? Glad he ate her. What? Cannibal? I I don't get it. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) Gladiator. Very good. Yes, yes. Very good indeed. You there. Young woman, whoever you are, your sharp wit has punctured the divisive barrier between the ruling class and the common people. And by doing so, you have revealed the shared humanity in us all. I believe your brash, topical sense of humor may well change the course of Western civilization. And in time, your name will become synonymous with freedom, liberty, and an end to tyranny. What is thy name? My name? I'm glad you asked. It's... It's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater, where not even the bard himself is safe from our brilliant, rapier-like punditry, it's Livewire. And now the woman who gets her blended citrus beverages from Orange Julius Caesar, Courtney Hobmeister. Welcome to the show. We have another great show for you tonight. We have two wonderful writers with us. The amazing poet and author of the award-winning book, All-American Poem, Matthew Dickman, is here tonight. And we also have activist, author, and feminist trailblazer, Susie Bright, with her new memoir, Big Sex, Little Death. Very excited about that. And our musical guest tonight is here with a preview of his brand new album, Strange Negotiations. Barsook Records' David Bazan is here tonight. So we're going to get to all that, but please welcome the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, the lovely Siren of Sound, Pachanowski. And as usual, poet Scott Poole, the author of Hiding from Salesmen. We'll take just one single hour. The amount of time it took Gertrude Stein to say that there was no there there at a Paris salon while Hemingway was throwing up on her rug (laughs) to write a poem that encompasses all that we have learned tonight. So welcome Scott and get to writing. And please welcome our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. 
great song. Thank you, guys. So later in the show, we will be having sex-positive feminist icon Susie Bright on the show. And uh, her appearance here made me really think about where we are in the sexual revolution right now as women, W-O-M-Y-N. Um, how's it going out there after 40 years? Well, it's funny you should say that, because it depends on where you look. Uh, if you're flipping through Elle magazine, not so well. Last week they published an interview with Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas and asked him about deal breakers with women that he's dating. And he responded, if she had condoms in her house, that would just effing throw me off. That's just tacky. <laughs> Will, I am confused. Um, you know, I've always looked to you as an arbiter of good taste, and <laughs> as I was listening to what I consider to be your masterpiece, The Donk Song, featuring Snoop Dogg, I was struck by the poignancy of the lyric, The Donk, The Donk, The Donk, The Donk. She, she, she got a big old butt, damn. I like the way she moves it. Come be my buttercup and let me double scoop it. And I feel like in this song that you are so clearly demonstrating your own discerning taste in asses, and you should be rewarded for that. So ladies who have condoms in their house, give him what he wants and do not have sex with this man. And Wills, please enjoy the sensual company of those ill-informed, inexperienced, and or STD-addled ladies who do not have condoms. And, uh, and we'll see you at the free clinic later. <laughs> well, actually, you know, uh, we won't see you at the free clinic if we're on Edwin Groening's bus in Austin, Texas. Uh, according to this week's Austin American Statesman, last year Edwin refused to drop two women off at Planned Parenthood based on his religious beliefs. He was fired but was recently awarded $21,000 in a discrimination lawsuit. Um, Ed Edwin, <laughs> after all the work that MTV's Rock of Love bus has done to further the cause of sexual freedom for ladies, you'd think as a bus driver you'd show some respect. I'm appalled. But there is good news, right? It's not necessarily printed, but it's good nonetheless. These men clearly have ideas about who the women in question are. Sluts, skanks, the decidedly un -gadonk -gadonk But because it's 2011, and because women like Susie Bright have fought for decades, we get to decide what to call ourselves, right? We can say in 2011 that we don't feel shame that there are condoms possibly expired in our bedside table. <laughs> I will also say that I am slightly ashamed that there is a copy of The Rules, the 1999 dating guide in mine, but I swear it was a gag gift and put lipstick on even when jogging on page 73 somehow got highlighted accidentally. <laughs> It is not, I did not do that. I do not jog. So it, in any case, what do we call ourselves? So women who own condoms are sexually responsible. Women who take public transportation to get healthcare are environmentally conscious or concerned with their physical well-being. And women who have sex with Will I Am, well, I'm not sure what to call them, but I think they're making bad choices. I hate to sound judgmental, but they should really call Snoop Dogg because he is a lot more respectful to his bitches. <laughs> um, yeah. So Susie Bright might have something to say about that later. We'll talk to her about it. Uh, for now, let us get started with this amazing show. Our musical guest tonight was named one of the top 100 living songwriters by Paste Magazine, uh, which is a much better list to be on than the top 100 dead songwriters, and their songs are just really boring. It's like mostly silence and creaking. Um, some may know him as the driving force behind the popular Northwest band Pedro the Lion. Since going solo, David's released three albums and is about to release his fourth here with an audio peek at some from his brand new record, Strange Negotiations. Please welcome David Bazan to Livewire.
You blew all your inheritance And now you're trying to pin the blame on me And I could write you off so easily Except a hundred million other people agree So yeah You kick and scream to get your way again But the writing is on the wall And pretty soon you'll go on to your reward And someone else is gonna make the call In the Strange negotiations Man, they really are getting me down Strange negotiations I feel like a stranger in my hometown Strange negotiations You know I'm looking for a way around All these strange negotiations Cut your leg off to save a buck or two Because you never consider the cost You find the lowest prices every day But would you look at everything that we've lost Yeah, it's true I learned it from watching you But now it's you Who doesn't know what a dollar is worth You got the market Its own bodyguard And all the people are getting hurt In the Strange negotiations Man, they really are getting me down Strange negotiations I feel like a stranger in my hometown Strange negotiations We should be looking for a way around All these strange negotiations
Thank you. <laughs> I think they liked it. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Welcome to the show, David. It's so good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. I think the audience may have liked that song. <laughs> it was a stunning song. Thank you. That's A. It sounded like, I don't know if you're one of those songwriters who doesn't like to talk about what the song is really about, but it sounds like you're, you're talking to someone very specific in that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them, but they're very specific them, yes. <laughs> Do you want to give us a hint? Um, well, it's, it's the magical thinking that goes into um, the right-wing political views um, is frustrating to deal with. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's a song that tries to express that. Yeah, it sounded you were talking about people who, who hold the market and... Yeah, people who refuse to take responsibility for their actions, not just when they're kids, um, but their whole adult lives, mm -hmm. um, is frustrating. Well, I, I've, read that, I've read that you said that this record is about self-delusion and mass delusion, mm -hmm. and when I read that, and when I listened to some of the songs, it did sound like there was quite a political bent. Yeah, it's, there. The, it's a current in running through the record. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is there a reason why this one is more political? Um, no, that, that's, well, there, I'm sure there is. My subconscious is the boss of what the next record is about. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, in, you know, 2008 was, um, I guess, three years ago. And, it's, again, it still seems like there's lessons that were pretty obvious right off the bat that people refused to admit. And uh, so, you know, I wrote it over the last couple of years. And, um, thankfully, it's still, not thankfully, it's a bummer that it's still um, appropriate. Right, right. You were listed as one of Pace Magazine's 100 best songwriters. What, for you, makes someone a good songwriter? Um, well, um, in one of you guys' recent episodes, uh, there was a comedy writer talking about just the devotion of sitting down every day and, um, and doing the work. And I think that there's a love for... Um, Songs, song craft, it's, it's just the sexiest little um, form, uh, the three to five minute pop song, folk song, whatever. It's all been done. There's nothing new to do. And yet every time I sit down and try to write one, it's brand, it's brand new. It's really exciting. So for me, just somebody who loves it, and you can tell that they do because things change over time in, in the, yeah, yeah. What does it feel like when you're in a groove, when you, when you are getting it exactly right? Well, you dare not even think, think that, I feel like. Um, I shouldn't have even said it. No, that you, no that there's a, I don't know, I don't believe in knocking on wood or jinxes or any other kinds of things like that, but there is sort of, um, you know, there's a humility of knowing that, well, that might just be the last song that I like that I, have ever, that I ever write. Um, and just knowing that you kind of have to just let it let it be that. And uh, but there's a mystery that that grows as you as you write more and more. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think you're quite good at it, frankly. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, so the record is Strange Negotiations. Mm -hmm. You're going to be back later to sing another song for yes, us. Thank you so much for joining Thank us, you. David Bazan. Music on tonight's Livewire Radio is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Power Seed. <laughs> Superman got his power from the sun. Power Seed gets its power from whole grains and omega-3s and doesn't have to wear that goofy cape all the time. <laughs> Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. Coming up, poets Matthew Dickman and Scott Poole, author Susie Bright, and more from David Bazan. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back to Livewire. From acclaimed independent film director Klaus Demare, it's a film to remember. How much further? What? How much further? Wish I knew. A film where things are happening beneath the surface. Are you going to eat that? This? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not even sure I'm hungry. Really beneath the surface. Like so far beneath the surface that it might seem like two people walking and eating and showering and getting dressed and cleaning the lint trap in the dryer and feeding the cat and staring at stuff for two hours. But it's not. It's really deep. Have you seen my pencil? Uh, what's it look like? Uh, never mind. Sandra Mank from IndieWire says, Almost nothing happened. At one point, I wondered whether I was in a film or the waiting room at my dentist's office. This is art. Charles St. Clair from Film Truth says, I had lost complete faith in humanity by the time it was over. Brilliant. Clark Willett of Filmy Independent says, I started to stab my thigh repeatedly with a nail file from my fingernail clippers just to stay awake. I smell an Independent Spirit Award. Does this milk smell weird to you? I don't know. Everything smells weird to me. A place there is. A film by Klaus Demare coming to a tiny, rundown yet plucky art house near you. Our next guest's first book, All-American Poem, won the 2008 American Poetry Review Hanukkah First Book Prize, an extremely prestigious award with an extremely long title. You can read his work in Tin House Magazine, The Missouri Review, and The New Yorker. Please welcome poet Matthew Dickman to Livewire. Uh, because of Courtney's introduction, um, I thought I would read a poem about breasts. And then a, a poem from a, uh, my new book, um, which will be out in a short 12 months, about um, uh, goldfish. The, the poem's about goldfish. This is about breasts. The small clasp. Your breasts were two drunken parents, coaching little league practice, but smaller, I remember, than the disappointment parents wrap around children, and now they've been replaced by others. Some were like exposed negatives, two copies of a Maria Callas biography, a pair of Dutch clogs, two pieces of chocolate cake that left me thirsty for two glasses of milk. Pierced, tattooed, each different, even from each other, one always seeming a little brighter, a little larger or smaller at midday or midnight, while it rained or began to snow sticking to the sidewalk. I remember my friend's wife the night I lifted her shirt over her shoulders in the tiny upstairs bathroom while he argued about T.S. Eliot and the Jews with the woman I would eventually drive home. Honor will only carry you so far before it drops you on your ass. You can't run from it, but you can get close, standing out in the cold, lighting your little cigar, talking a woman's ear off, making her feel lonelier with every story you tell. I've learned to conquer loneliness the way television conquers loneliness. The woman in the car commercial bending over the hood, her breasts, telling me this is the car for you, handsome. You have to believe in it if you want to survive. You have to let the old lies into bed and make them sing for you. And it's the same thing when I dream about your breasts and a floating riding crop. 
I have to remember how wonderful it feels pulling my hands out of my pockets, moving them slowly between someone's spine and yellow t-shirt, happy to unhook the small clasp without the fingerprints of love, without the familiar sound of our neighbors fighting and all the effortless moaning that went with you. You've had as much beer as I've had. Um, so this next poem is um, a new poem, and it's an elegy uh, for goldfish who often live rotten lives. <laughs> elegy to a goldfish. I can't remember when my brother and I decided to kill you. Small animal with no school, bright and happy at the bottom, slipping through the gate of your fake castle. I think it was winter, a part of us aware of the death outside, the leaves being burned up and the squirrels starving inside the oaks, the sky knocking its clouds into the ashtray of the city like a gray finger on the tip of a gray cigar. And it might have been me who picked you up first who chased you around the clean bowl of your life and brought you up into the suffocating elevator of ours, my heart becoming an empty room as I did it. And I want to say it was my brother who threw you against the wall like a drunk husband. The glowworm inch of you sliding down the English garden of wallpaper. And that it was me who raised my leg like a dog. Me, who brought my bare foot slamming down on your almost-nothing ribs and felt you smear like a pimple. Now that's something I get to have forever. That Halloween candy-sized rage. That cough drop of meanness. And your death, only the beginning the mushy orange autopsy reminded us of mandarins, navels, bloods, Persians, the sweet Valencia. And when the girl, who must have thought of you all day and especially on recess, came home to find the emptiness of it all, the water in your bowl a centimeter lower for the loss of you, when my little sister's brain received the black letter of your death, the maybe 20 seconds it took for her to read it, and looked at us, my brother and I, I remember we started to laugh at her. And the laughing must have sounded like an arm being cut off or like a mouth that was full of broken glass. And then it might have been me, though it could have been him, who thought to open the can of tangerines, who pulled one of the orange bodies out of the syrup and threw it at her, this new artificial you, chasing her around the house, screaming, eat him, eat him. But it was me who held her down on her bed. And it was him who forced her mouth open. And it was me who pushed the sticky fruit into her throat like a bloody foot into a sock. You'd only been gone for one hour, and yet the sky outside turned black and red. The tree in the yard thrashed back and forth until its spinal cord broke, and my little sister, your one love, flashed white, and pulsed like neon in a hospital, her eyes rolling back a moment into the aquarium of her head, and in every country, countless deaths, but none as important as yours. Tiny Christ, machine of hope, martyr of girls and boys. Thank you. Matthew Dickman.
That was poet Matthew Dickman, and you're listening to Livewire, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who remind you that the world's honeybee population is dwindling, and there are things you can do to help, like planting a bee-friendly garden with native flowering plants and not running around screeching like a little girl anytime a bee comes within 20 feet of you. <laughs> More information can be found at their website, wholefoodsmarket.com. can't believe we're finally doing this. I'm such a big fan of your sex book. I drove 500 miles to get to you, your book signing. I know, I know. God, I'm so glad you came up and introduced yourself. You're mm-hmm. so cute. Wow. <laughs> uh, thanks for helping me carry my books back to my room. You are an amazing writer. I mean, no one has come up with positions like that since the Kama Sutra. I mean, I can't wait to try chapter 14, page 136. Uh, chapter what? Oh, you know, Captain Kangaroo and the Bashful Joey. I mean, you explained it in such excellent detail. I've got the boomerang right here. Whoa, whoa, hold on, Captain K. Uh, you know that's my book. That's not me. What do you mean? I mean, are you not into the Pilgrim Blows the Blunderbuss? Uh, the Blunder what? What do you mean, the Blunder what? The Blunderbuss. I mean, it's right after the Horn of Plenty, but before the first planting of maize. Okay, did you make that up? No, I'm talking chapter 17, Party Like a Puritan. Page 193? I mean, are you kidding me? Do you not know your own book? Oh, well, just because I write about it doesn't mean I'm necessarily into it. What about rocking the van to the oldies chapter? I mean, you don't want to try the Simon and Garfunkel? Uh, Not really. Maybe just the Garfunkel? No. Funkel? No. Okay. I'm really into all the usual stuff. Can't we just do that? Oh, I, I guess, but I was really hoping that we could... Explore the Antarctic, like it says in Chapter 8. You know, a little tickle the penguin to warm up, then a a bit of the diving under the flow. Then I thought we could move to the narwhal and the jellyfish. Uh, Then when global warming makes the polar bear cry, we could ride the melting iceberg around the Horn of Africa. That one's pretty complicated. There's a lot of arm strength, so we should probably warm up. Uh, Okay, okay, just please stop. What? God, this always happens. Oh, I should have known. What? I didn't write the damn book. What, none of it? None. Not the medieval cupcake? Nope. What about the old woman and the shoe? Uh Uh-uh. A shaved monkey in the laundry basket? Uh, No. Besides, I don't even think that last one is real. Look, I I had it ghost-written, okay? Wow. I can't believe this. I mean, Godzilla rides Mothra helped me get a raise with my old boss. The Wookiee and the Limp Brush saved my first marriage. And the first time I did one-hour Martinizing, I cried. I mean, I actually wept, and I'm not easily moved to tears. Well, I'm, I'm happy for you. I, look, this is my room. Okay. Well, if you didn't write it, can you tell me who did? I would like to meet her. Really? Yeah. Okay, fine. Susie, this is Ben. Ben, this is Susie Bright. Uh, oh. Okay, awesome. Hi, Ben. Hi. Susie is my ghostwriter. So you wrote the book. I uh, ghostwrote it. Those were experimental sex positions, so I didn't want my name on them until they were roted, so to speak. But I'm glad you liked them. What are you you doing here, though? Oh, she's actually helped writing me um, ghostwrite my memoir about mountain climbing and building schools or whatever in Afghanistan. So, did you do that? No, but it turns out you don't even have to. Oh, that's kind of cool. Well, Miss Bright, I mean, do you have any advice for me, maybe? Oh, sure. First, stop being such a little whiner. It's a major turnoff. Second, you need to take this beautiful woman to another room because I'm watching a Gossip Girl marathon. But if things turn stale... May I recommend the uh, position I call the runaway ostrich gets caught in the swing set? It's one of my favorites. Thank Thank you, you, Susie Susie Bright. Bright. Oh, no, thank you. Um, Go. um, Be safe or, well, screw it. Just be creative. Thank you. (laughs) 
Our next guest became an activist at 16 years old in the epicenter of 70s political activism in the US, Berkeley, California, and pretty much hasn't stopped making waves since then. She was a founding member of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. She co-founded On Our Backs, the first woman's sex magazine, and the first woman's erotica series, Herotica. She is a speaker, she's a teacher, she's an audio show host, she's a performer and the author of 10 books. Her latest is a memoir, Big Sex, Little Death. Please welcome Susie Bright to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Susie. I am over the moon to be here. This is so much more awesome in person than it is sitting at home in California listening to iTunes, I have to say. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That's very exciting for us to hear because we are so excited to have you. Oh, I, you are a role model. A role <laughs> Thank model. you so much. Wow. That means a lot. Um, I may have just peed my pants a little. <laughs> It seems to be that kind of night. It does. It does a little bit. I wanted to talk, I wanted to go back to your beginnings a little bit um, because the book goes back to your beginnings and spends a lot of time in, in the 70s. And when you, were, when you were 16 years old, you, jo- you joined a group called the International so- Socialists. Yeah, it actually started uh, before then. I was in high school and I belonged to what was, turned out to be the longest-running high school underground newspaper. It was called The Red Tide. And we would do things like, uh, well, we would protest the war, but we were also protesting the cafeteria. We would protest the narcs. When the school would announce there was a girls' week with powder puff football and mother-daughter fashion show, we said, no, it's going to be women's week, and we're taking over the janitor's closet and turning it into an abortion referral center. And it's going to be... <laughs> There's going to be a lesbian panel, and uh, uh, I was in. You know, that was my that was my awakening socially and politically. What made you that political that early in your life? Do you think? Hmm. I think. Uh, I mean, I had this this sense of of the underdog. You know, the it's not fair. God damn it, kind of spirit from the time I was a little kid, but I think most kids do. Don't you have a, a sense of righteousness? And like, why isn't someone telling the truth? And when somebody tells a lie, why doesn't someone say, stop it? And it just got, it was undiluted. And I lived in a time and a place where there were other young people who felt the same way. I mean, my introduction to women's liberation was just, you know, leaving school and we closed down the main boulevard in the part of Los Angeles that I lived in and just marched down the street. I mean, uh, I thought women's liberation was synonymous with sexual liberation, and I was just having sex, like, as of one week ago, so I was very excited about it. Yeah, I think certainly at the time, that was the epicenter of not only the political revolution at the time, but the sexual revolution. Yeah. And your political revolution was quite sexual. You got a lot of really, really hot action at that, <laughs> at that point. And it's in the book, I have to say, one of the hottest memoirs I've read. But how do you see the political revolution at the time and the sexual revolution as being connected? I think uh, we always had... I mean, it wasn't just me. I would read some of my heroines, like Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist. And when she said... It's not my revolution if I can't dance to it. You knew that was a euphemism. You know, that if, if, her, if her revolution wasn't a full-blooded sexual revolution, something you could move to, something you felt from, you know, your G-spot to your, your fingertips, then why were we even bothering? Uh, and, I mean, she made that very explicit in her work, and I always looked up to... There's always been a bohemian, um, sexually honest authentic strain in feminism. I mean, Victoria Brownworth used to stand on a soapbox and demand free love in downtown New York, you know, in her long Was skirts. that effective? <laughs> Do you think it might still be effective today? You know, in her case, it worked out rather well. But uh, so I, I, had my, I had my heroines. And then I think I 
I mean, I thought it was like, remember how people used to feel about the space program? I mean, I thought we were like, okay, up, up and away. You know, this is just the beginning. You know, 20 years from now, we'll all be lying in a big round waterbed, you know, tickling the ivories. I, I, had, I had no idea that Reaganism was in the wings. I, I really didn't. <laughs> well, you did have this utopian idea of what was going to happen after the sexual revolution and that people weren't going to be jealous anymore and that you would be able to have sex with whoever you wanted to have. And yeah, that it would be not? sort of a sexual <laughs> utopia. But why do you think that we have come to where we've come? Uh, I think that sexual repression is the litmus test of elitism. And we all see it every day. All the people who want you to stop screwing around, who want to ban the word uterus in the Congress, who, who want to stop abortions, who, who slut-shame women, who pillarize men who don't act manly enough for them. I mean, all of it comes from people who do whatever they want in their private life. They're complete hypocrites, and they don't believe in these things sincerely, whether they call themselves liberal or conservative. They feel entitled, like the Vatican, to enjoy the largest pornography collection in the world, to enjoy whatever kinky taste they might have. But all you little people, you little people who should be you know, content to work for minimum wage, you should not be able to control your sexual destiny. You know, you should only feel shame about sex. Well, you had a daughter 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Around, was it 2021? She's going to be 21 in a month. How did she change your politics, if at all, having her? I had some things in my family I wanted to carry on. You know, things I felt like that was really special, something I got from the people who raised me. But there were other things that I wanted to stop. And it was, it was kind of a challenge. I mean, many people ask me, oh, you know, what kind of insane birds and bees talk did you have with your daughter? Or, you know, what kind of bizarre sexual initiation did the poor girl have under your tutelage? Uh, I'll tell you, the two biggest things were, number one, she wasn't raised believing in hell and damnation and sin, and that something was really sick about her very body, her very female body. And that's how I was raised. And what a shocking difference it is. I remember the time, the first time I heard her taking the Lord's name in vain, so to speak. She, she used the word Jesus Christ in a strange manner when she was in kindergarten. And I said, Aretha, what do you think Jesus Christ means? And we were in the car, and she turned to me and she said, get out of my way. <laughs> was like, that's right. That's right. That's excellent. Um, the other thing was, uh, was, was harder, uh, a lot harder. When I was pregnant, I, I thought about this a lot, because I was one of those people who got pregnant accidentally on purpose. I, I said to myself, I have a terrible temper. Everybody in my family has a terrible temper, and the way every child was raised in this family was um, was being hit, you know, uh, not because you'd necessarily done anything. You, you, you know, you grow up walking on eggshells and you know you're going to get hit. And I said to myself, you know, that's got to stop here. And many people ask me, well, well, what is that? I mean, that's a good principle. What does that have to do with sex or sexual development? It has a lot to do with it. it. has the same effect as incest. When you physically dominate your child and you strike them, um, when they are afraid of you physically because of what you can impose upon them, it's really hard for them to separate, which is what it's all about. I mean, every time they learn how to walk and take a step, it's like you just made it as a parent because you're helping them grow up. And when you, when you physically come down on them like that, it makes it really hard to grow up. Uh, and it's really hard to break that cycle. Oh, right? no kidding. When it's yeah, been done I, to you. Yeah, I knew. Was that I, a challenge for you? Oh, of course it was. I couldn't. I knew it wasn't going to be good enough because I'm sure many of your audience knows this too. Part of the abuse cycle is that someone will say, you know, the person who just beat you will say, "Oh, poor me. That was so terrible." <laughs> you know, comfort me, make me feel better, tell me I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry it happened. You take care of me. And I remember as I became an adolescent how cold that made me feel. 
Like I could take the hitting, but I couldn't take the, I didn't want to ever comfort that person again, ever. I mean, that, that, you know, I was hardening, hardening up. So I, you know, I had to make a plan. I think you have to have a plan B, like when you know you're going to get to that place. I, I hate to say read the book, but, you know, when you, when you get to that place, you have to have a thing, a thing to go to, a different plan, an escape route. And uh, so far... I've done it. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's what is in the book. It, you, you, it's clear, I mean, from the very beginning of the book, it's lovely because you see that you've come to this comfortable place and then you see this comfortable place in the end in your life where you're happy. And it's wonderfully written and it is really hot. I would recommend it um, <laughs> if, you, if you enjoy erotica as well. The book is Big Sex, Little Death. The author is Susie Bright. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> That was author Susie Bright, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. If you live in the Portland area, come to our show on June 3rd at the Alberta Rose Theater. Guests include comedian and The Daily Show co-creator Liz Winstead, Authors Eric Larson and David Shields, and musical guests Alayla, Diane, and Ramona Falls. That's June 3rd, livewireradio.org for tickets and details. It's time for the... Audience Haiku! We have asked our audience to expound on three different subjects in the form of haiku. Sex, poetry, and strange negotiations. Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Ralph Huntley. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their Blue Paddle Pilsner, named not for a boat paddle, but for an old-fashioned butt paddle. The brewer's, grandmother used, the, the brewer's grandmother used on him when he took a sip of her beer. Blue Paddle Pilsner. It'll have you saying, thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> Thanks, New Belgium. And now, audience haiku. Uh, Ralph, I have one. Can I get some musical accompaniment? Something uh, that conveys uh, some tense bargaining. Try new things in bed. We can compromise on toys. But the chicken stays. Thank you, Dan. Okay, Ralph, um, can I get some baby-making music circa, like, 1970s? Sex is great. Stroking, kissing, touching. I hear it's great with others, too. (laughs) Thanks, Patrick. And now, from the audience, to read his very own haiku, perhaps against his will, please welcome Arnie. Again, we have a little bit of blues, down and dirty. Hey, I know it's my birthday, and Livewire is a lot of fun. You promised me sex, 
at home, Arnie was off book. He was memorized for that haiku. Bonus points. You're listening to Livewire Radio, and if you'd like to listen to Livewire after Livewire, so many Livewires in a row that Livewire itself becomes a semantic satiation, wherein the repetition makes the words lose all meaning, past Livewire shows can be found on our website or at iTunes. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, David Bazan. Thank you. When you get this message, I'll be high above the earth. I'm thinking about the promises. That I keep When I touch down in Texas Land in Dallas, Fort Worth I will call you up And wake you from your sleep I will not let go I will not let go I will not let go of you I will not let go I will not let go I will not let go of men I cannot say but I keep arriving safely home to you and I humbly acknowledge that I won't always get my way but darling death will have to pry my I will not let go I will not let go I will not let go And now, as promised, he has been working very hard for the last 56 minutes to help us digest all that's happened. Please welcome back poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. 
I learned tonight that a Caesar salad has almost nothing to do with sex. It's nice that something in this world doesn't. If I want to be completely sex-free, I eat a Caesar salad. And I compliment my croutons. You're so beautiful, yet rugged. Then I save them and set them next to my plate. And they look at me like a hero. And I'd like to think they are thanking me for saving them. Don't judge me. This is my personal moment of poetry. You can't stop me. I can be completely sex-free any way I want. This is one of the few benefits of being a raging eunuch. I don't have to worry about having condoms around, but I do have to worry about Will I Am hanging out at my house. So there's upsides and there are downsides. One upside is you could pretend to be David Bazan, slowly strumming a guitar while riding a horse through a mall, slowly going past bed, bath, and beyond looking for a sale. Those guys that work at those carts in the middle trying to sell you a sell. Such strange negotiations, it's so hard to know which cell they are selling. It's so hard to find a bathroom and a way out in a mall. <laughs> Why not, as David suggests, cut a piece off yourself to save a buck or two? Someone should make an independent film about this. <laughs> about me yelling at my salad and riding my horse and looking for a nice lotion and avoiding cell phone salesmen and looking for an exit at the mall. How epic, my eunuch life. You might as well dress up as a goldfish when you go to the mall, if it's going to be in a movie. Make people wonder what kind of advertisement you've become, the upside and downside of being a eunuch. You stare a lot at breasts from a giant goldfish costume. It's not easy to avoid. There's so many breasts in the world, and so many people who own breasts, people who like to go to the mall, people who buy cell phones and CDs and lava lamps and double-shot mochas. Each breast points in a direction it can't help itself. You want to go wherever it's going, even if it's Old Navy. With its one eye, it just stares at you like a television. It's not polite to stare at breasts, but I think it's equally not polite for breasts to stare at me. <laughs> Makes you wish for a sex expert to advise you when the best time is to do it and the best time to go to Olive Garden for a Caesar salad full of unsaved croutons. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Matthew Dickman, Susie Bright, and David Bazan. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our senior producer is Robin Tannenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brumberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, and house poet Scott Poole. And performers Trisha Ferguson and Siren of Sound Pat Janowski. Our guest writers this week were Burl Ross and Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Matt King. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is your announcer, Tyler Hughes, saying, Manteca, Manteca, Spanish for lard. Keep listening to the credits every week for more Spanish vocabulary tips, and you can habla espanol in just 75 years. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And 
if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. From PRX.